Judges chapter 8 is where we are, and um, at the risk of dating myself in numerous, numerous ways, um, back when there used to be newspapers, and you used to get them on Sunday, on Sunday they had color comics in them, um, and even before my day, when I would get up and read the comics on Sunday, there was an older comic named Pogo, um, and back in the 50s, Pogo famously um, misquoted a line from history, and, and Pogo's quote of it is this, we have met the enemy, and he is us. And I think that's what Gideon uh, is going to demonstrate to us in Judges chapter 8. Um, Gideon is going to become his own worst enemy. Um, Gideon has some ups and downs. He's a mixed bag. Um, he starts off pretty reluctantly and and kind of uh, hesitatingly, but but he actually does do what the Lord asks him to do, even though it's under cover of darkness. And and then God calls him to um, to go and attack the Midianite army, and he he has to be assured again and again and again. But he actually does rout that Midianite army in chapter seven. Um, so even though reluctant and kind of weak in his faith, he actually finally is obedient. But in chapter eight, he becomes. Um, really the epitome of the turn in the book of the judges becoming worse and worse and worse. Um, Del Ralph Davis calls chapter 8, his title for the chapter is, It's Hard to Finish Well. And, and Gideon becomes an example of that. It is really hard to finish well. To finish your life well is, is really, you know, the deal there. Um, but it's hard to finish Maybe a time of service that you've had well. Maybe it's, it'll be hard to finish um, parenting well or, or finish um, going through the 40 days of Lent well. It's hard to finish well. And, and the reason it's difficult to finish well is because we've met the enemy and he is us. We struggle with ourselves. And, and Christianity, unfortunately, is, is littered with examples of people who represent for us how uh, it is hard to finish well, but also the, the huge ramifications that take place when people don't finish well. Um, I don't mean to be rude, but Ravi Zacharias falls into that category. Um, Ravi um, had a great ministry, a great apologetics ministry around the world, um, written over 50 books, many of which I would recommend that you read. Um, Ravi lived his life um, sharing the gospel around the world and, and standing up for Christ around the world. Um, and yet, after he died, the, the news reports just would not stop coming out. Ravi Zacharias' sexual misconduct confirmed by independent investigation. An entire life of ministry, um, many books now pulled off the shelves and not being published anymore because he disqualified himself because he, he did not end well. Um, there's some other examples of not ending well. Um, the most listened to podcast in 2021 is this one, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about Mars Hill Bible Church in Seattle, Washington. Just curious, I was surprised how few people had listened to it uh, in the first service. How many of you have listened to this podcast? Some of you, a little bit more in this. Um, this. Listening to this is like a train wreck. Once you start, you can't stop. And, and, and once you start, you'll be aghast at the things you hear. Now, I'm going to say something really quickly. 
Um, Mark Driscoll, who's the pastor here um, of Mars Hill Bible Church, I, I knew Mark in Seattle just barely. Um, I, we met a few times. Um, I mean, if he walked into the room, he wouldn't recognize me. I would know him because he's famous. Um, but if you would have asked me back in 1997, 1998, when we lived in Seattle, and, and Mars Hill Bible Church had just been planted, and it was about 300 people, I, I would have told you Mark Driscoll is the perfect guy for Eddie Vedder's Seattle grunge crowd. He's exactly what that, that community needed as he stood strongly for the gospel, vocally. Um, and, and if you heard him taking a stand, you would go, man, that guy's taking a stand. And in a difficult situation, standing for the authority of God's word. Um, and, and the church blew up. I mean, it, it went from when we were there in 1998 from about 300 people to 15,000 on 15 different campuses throughout, Seattle, throughout the Seattle area. The church actually just, I mean, it exploded, and then the church blew up because Mark did not finish well. Um, Mark uh, became authoritarian in his leadership, and he became, um, I think, enamored with his own popularity and his own um, ability to express things that he began to take that advantage, advantage of that in, in a lot of different ways, and it's... Um, uh, he, he, really, he, he really did not finish well there. Um, and it left carnage all over the place. Um, he, he reflects what uh, an interesting old quote by Lord Acton. And, and before, I, before I give you this quote, let me tell you, he, uh, Lord Acton is a, is a Catholic scholar, um, and he's actually talking about papal infallibility here. Um, he's a Catholic but he, he had concerns about papal infallibility, and he said this, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Even when they exercise influence and not authority, still more when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. Uh, when people are, are, are great men... Um, if they're just influencing people, that's dangerous. But when you give them some sense of authority, it's almost a guarantee to go bad. Then he says this, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. Um, for Christians, you feel sometimes, I feel some sanctified. I'm set apart. God uses me and I understand grace. Um, and this can often be a dangerous place to be in. Um, about 20 years ago in our elders retreats, and we have one coming up um, at the end of March, about 20 years ago in our elders retreat, I began um, doing something that I've done every elders retreat since then, and that is I ask our elders to promise me out loud that if I am found to be in moral compromise, that they will fire me immediately and publicly. And, and very often, you know, they're kind of, oh, Ken, yeah, yeah. And I make them say, yes, do you, are you, do you guys agree you will do that? Now, sometimes they agree quicker than I would like them to. Um, but the idea, though, here is public figures need to be held accountable. Um, and, and I don't want to let it slide a little bit, a little bit, until I have enough power to, um, to wield that power in, in damaging and horrible ways. 
And so I, once a year, get a group of men to promise that they will fire me. And and not kind of restore me secretly in the back. No, fire me, fire me publicly from this stage and not let me come back. Because it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to end well. (laughs) Particularly if you don't have some accountability around you. Um, Now, I don't want to end this on just a a downer, so I'm going to point you to something positive. Um, Back in September of last year, Chuck Swindoll uh, preached a message called The Essential Ingredient for Ministry, and um, the essential ingredient is integrity. He talks about integrity and and living with integrity, and uh, I would encourage you to listen to the message. It is a a really good message about living with integrity and what it means to not pretend and what, how, how to live in that way. And, and at the end of the message, Chuck, and I don't know how much he'd been impacted by the stuff that's gone on with Ravi and, and other Christian leaders, um, but at the end of the message, he gets emotional as he, he, he prays and just kind of cries out that, um, that he would not embarrass his family or embarrass the Lord with his life. Um, it's a real positive message. I would, I would encourage you to, to listen to it and... Um, it's not the train wreck that the rise and fall of Mars Hill is, but it is a fantastically encouraging message. I would encourage you to listen to it. All of this is because in Judges chapter 8, we're reaching Gideon's demise. <laughs> this is Gideon off the rails. He, he was hesitant and, and, and questioning in, in his trust of God, um, two times tearing down the altar in his father's yard and and attacking the the Midianite army. He actually exhibits faith, but in chapter 8, everything is going to really fall apart. I've got a couple resources out at the Connection Center. Some of them may actually be gone. I'll try to make some more available next week, but you can get them on the website. Uh, The first one over there by um, Dr. Chisholm is is it's an interesting thing I decided to do here. It's it's his overview. After 50 pages of commentary on the Gideon stories in, Genesis, in Judges 6, 7, and 8. This is his section at the end where he goes, Here are, here's, here's the big message, the principles, and applications, and how you can preach it. Okay, so it's all for me, but, but gosh, you guys would really enjoy this overview of, of the whole Gideon series. And he kind of summarizes the 50 pages of commentary before it. He summarizes that and then moves into theological principles and applications and even preaching trajectories in that. The two articles by uh, Lawson Younger, I, I, I dare you to read them. <laughs> uh, they are just so good. The first one on grace and truth, um, God's grace in our life and uh, grace and growth. And, and really, it's not so much growth as it is the spiritual decline that he's talking about and the impact that that has. And then, um, gosh, if, if, you can, if you can easily get out today by um, picking up one of the free books and not getting the one on hypocrisy, you'll have a better afternoon, okay? You'll just have a better afternoon if you don't read the one on hypocrisy, um, but it's worth reading. The Gideon Cycle, um, we've talked about it. It's, it's three chapters long, and, and one of the ways you can look at it is the first half of the stories is Gideon's rise. He's kind of, he's reluctant. He, he's not heroic, even though God says, you're going to be a great warrior. Um, he does tear down an altar, um, and, and he does um, fight with the Lord, even though he's got to be assured all along the way. 
But here in chapter 8, we're going we're gonna to really take a turn, and we're going to see not his rise, but his demise. And it's going to go downhill for himself personally, and then for his family, and for the entire nation. Um, he does not finish well. And in that, I think he's a really good example for us. The, the story actually starts off well, which I think is a foil for how it all goes downhill after that. Um, uh, what happens here, I just went to someplace I didn't want to go. Let me go right there. Um, he starts off with, um, with a really positive scene where he respects his critics. Um, here, here's what's happened. Um, Gideon has reluctantly um, torn down the altar in his dad's yard. He's gone to the battle, and, and God has whittled down the army. He starts off um, with, with a, a huge army. Uh, about 12,000 men, and God whittles that down to where he only has 300 men. And with the 300 men, he has surrounded um, 100,000 plus of the Midianites, Amalekites, um, Eastern peoples who have all gathered together. They don't know each other, but there's a bunch of armies that have gathered together. They surround them. Uh, they blow their horns at the beginning of the, the uh, as soon as the light's coming up, they blow their horns um, and they break these uh, jars, and there's lanterns, and the people um, are caused by the Lord, by the way. This doesn't make sense, but they're caused by the Lord to turn on one another and attack one another. And, um, and, and there's a huge, huge loss of lives, and, and Gideon and his 300 men don't have to take any of those lives because God has caused it miraculously. He's the one who wins the victory. But some of the people are, are going to take off running, and now um, Gideon is, is chasing them, and he is now, with his 300 men, he's asked some other tribes, you see this at the end of chapter 8, to cut off the Jordan uh, River, and they capture some more of these generals. And there's a confrontation that takes place here, and, and Gideon is actually in a very positive light here. He, he winsomely responds to the pride of the Ephraimites with grace and wisdom, and he's able to preserve the peace. L look at what happens here. Now, the Ephraimites, and whenever, by the way, the Ephraimites show up in Judges, it's not good. You, when they show up, no one invited them. That, that's, that's who they are. They're going to be responsible for lots of trouble in Judges. Now, the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian, when you were circling them? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better, grapes better than the full grapes, uh, grape harvest of Abiezer? That's Gideon's dad. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Um, just the 300 attacked. Um, a lot of them started fleeing. He calls the other tribes to help him. And the Ephraimite tribe is able to help. And they capture and kill Oreb and Zeb, make a couple monuments at a, at a, a wine press and a, and a well. Um, they, they make monuments to where they've killed these guys. And now the Ephraimites say, hey, why didn't you get us in on the, the beginning of the battle? And, and Gideon very shrewdly and winsomely just says, oh, you guys have done such a great job. You, you did a better job than me. What you did is so great. Um, I can pause and make an application here. And the application is just what Proverbs 15.1 says. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's what you see personified in, in Gideon here. Um, now, 
Again, I think it is accurate. It's what he does. But it's the foil for whatever is going to happen in the rest of the chapter. Gideon can pull this off. Gideon knows how to be a wise man who uses a gentle answer to turn away wrath. He knows how to do it. And he starts off well, but then it's going to turn and go some really bad ways. Lawson Younger says, If the narrative ended roughly at 8.3, Gideon would be considered one of the heroic judges of ancient Israel, notwithstanding his problem with fear and lack of faith. You'd go with fear and lack of faith. He did a great job. However, the narration continues... And the portrayal of Gideon becomes bleaker and bleaker. Here's how Danny Hayes describes it. The story, however, does not end yet. And the way in which a story ends is usually very important to its overall meaning. Unlike after the previous defeat of the Midianites back in in Numbers, or after the capture of Jericho during the original conquest, there's no mention in Gideon's victory of uh, of dedicating the captured gold and silver to the Lord by placing it in the tabernacle. He doesn't get the stuff and, and use it as an offering. Instead, Gideon collects a portion of the gold the Israelites captured and makes it into an ephod, a garment that priests traditionally wore. Then, rather than placing this in the tabernacle, Gideon puts it in his hometown, probably in the, the same place that the altar he, that he tore down. He's now putting this thing up there, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping this golden ephod there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Boy, if you start, stop at the very beginning of the chapter, we're, we're in good, good stead. But, but the, the chapter's going to really go down from here. And instead of respecting his critics, we're going to move immediately to him disrespecting his critics. Um, he's going to respond harshly. Now, there's some understandability because the people he's talking with are f- fearful and they're angry. But he's still going to be harsh with them, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to just um, stir the pot. I want you to see what's going on here. The the battle that has taken place um, initially where they defeat the Midianites is up there in the north of this map next to the the Sea of Galilee. There's a a little explosion up there, and that's where the battle is uh, just north of Inharad. That's Terrified Springs uh, where all the people who are terrified go home, okay? That's where the the main battle where they circle them and have their torches and, and scream the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The, the eastern armies that have gathered there, the ones who are left, they are fleeing, and they're fleeing back south because that's where the Midianites and the Amalekites are from. They're fleeing back south, and they're having to cross the Jordan River. Now, I'm going to zero in on these two cities, um, Sukkoth and Peniel, which is what the two cities we're going to see. If you'll notice, they're both on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Over on the western side, you've got all of the tribes. You've got Manasseh and Naphtali and Asher. You've got all of the other tribes. But these two cities, um, are half of Manasseh is, is over there on the other side. They're way more at risk to the Midianites and the Amalekites and all of those other tribes that live just south of there. Far more at risk because if, the, if they don't completely defeat them and the Midianites and the Amalekites are either to re- regather... The first group they're going after lives in Peniel and Sukkoth. Keep that in mind as we read this. Gideon and his 300 men, everybody else has kind of given off the, the, the chase, but Gideon and his 300, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and they crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zomunah, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zomunium in your, in your uh, possession? 
Why should we give bread to your troops? Here's what they're saying. Have you got them yet? Because if you've got them, maybe we'll help. But if you don't have these kings yet, there's no guarantee that they're not going to gather their troops. And then you're putting us at risk. So we're not helping you. We're not going to aid and abet the, the enemy yet. Because if we help you and Zeba and Zomuna uh, gather their troops back together, we're, we're putting ourselves at risk. Then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zomuna into my hands, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Well, that's a little bit different than, hey, you guys did such a great job. You did a better job than I, my whole family could do. Um, this is the opposite of that. From there, he went to Peniel, this next city, and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower, the the prominent uh, tower in their city. So he's got two groups who, who, uh, at one level, understandably are saying, hey, listen, this is risky for us. And he harshly responds by saying, Hey, when, once I win it, I'm coming back and giving you a whooping. And in fact, when I get back, I'm tearing that tower down. Um, we're going to see there's some other things going on for Gideon. He, he is going to move and he's going to rout the enemy. Um, and I, this, is, this is one of those things that's really confusing to me because Gideon is so, he's so in and out. You know, it's, yeah, he, he, he's faithful and, and he's, tenacious and persevering to do to defeat the enemy but there's all kinds of other things going on here Here, here's how it it plays itself out now zeba and zomuna were in karkor uh, with a force of about fifteen thousand men all that were left of the armies of the eastern uh, peoples 120,000 swordsmen had fallen gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of noba and jagbaha and attacked the unsuspecting army Zeba and Zomuna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing the entire army. So he's pursued the army across the Jordan River, doesn't get any help. He's going to rout the army because he attacks in the middle of the night, basically, is what's going on. He attacks in the middle of the night. The two kings flee, but he he captures them as well. Now, when I was outlining this message, actually, last Sunday, um, and I started putting words down, the word revenge just kept showing up. I just like, well, this is revenge. and this. So I, here's the best I can do. This is revenge part one, because um, there's going to be revenge part two. And what we're going to see here is petty vengeance doesn't honor the Lord. This is petty. Gideon, successful, now powerful, respected, but he uses that position to execute petty vengeance. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth. Who were the guys who voted to not help us? The elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zelmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zelmuna in your possession? Why should we give bread to these exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. This is not um, routing the army of the enemies of God. Kenneth Way, just so you don't think I'm on an island in this, he says, Gideon is unnecessarily vengeful and acts like a ruthless tyrant. He's becoming a thug. 
Um, Greg Wong makes a great observation, but he also kills the men of Peniel, something that seems excessive, especially when compared to Deborah and Barak's mere verbal rebuke of those who had similarly refused to help. Remember in the song of, of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, there were people who didn't come to help Barak in the battle, but they're just rebuked. They're not punished and killed. But the trend will only worsen as Jephthah later slaughters 42,000 Ephraimites over a similar issue of non-cooperation. Not the next guy, but the next guy, Jephthah. He's going to take it even to a, a higher range. And now we move to revenge part two. And, and this isn't just petty vengefulness. This is a personal vendetta now. And those personal vendettas don't honor the Lord. Then he asks Zeba and Zomuna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Um, royal people like you, um, people who had power and authority. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lived, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. At first, this may feel like the positive side. Well, gosh, he's, he's only killing them because they killed his brothers. Um, listen to this. During the conquest, the standard practice seemed to have been the killing of defeated enemy kings, either in the battle or its aftermath. Look at all the references that follow after that. In Judges, Adonai Bezek's death in 1-7 could very well represent this kind of execution. In fact, even in the period of the monarchy, both Saul's sparing of the Amalite king Agag in 1 Samuel 15 and Ahab's sparing of the Armenian king Ben-Hadad in 1 1 Kings 20 result in judgment from the Lord. This means Gideon actually has no legitimate basis to consider sparing the two Midianite kings. He shouldn't have spared them. doesn't matter who they killed or how they killed them. He should not have spared them. But, but he's taunting them. The taunt gets worse. Look at this. Uh, turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to humiliate you so much that, that now that I've made it clear that you've killed my brothers, and that's why I'm killing you, not because I've been tasked this with the Lord. I'm, I'm going to have my son kill you. But Jether did not draw his, draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Um, what's going on with this? This feels weird, doesn't it, to you as you're reading it? Why, why does he ask his son to do it, and he's, a, he's just a kid, and he says no? Lawson Younger says, Jether, Gideon's firstborn, who is unexpectedly introduced at this point, serves as an antithesis to his father and points out the contrast between Gideon as he was at the beginning of the story, cautious, not trusting, feeling like he couldn't do anything, and Gideon as he now is, a thug. It's almost to remind you, remember what Gideon used to be like? But he's not like that now. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. Um, it's an important little note there. He took the ornaments off the camels' necks. It's going to betray something going on with Gideon here um, that I want to I highlight as we move on here. Gideon's going to make a, a risky request here. His subtle pride and his arrogance is going to be revealed not in what he says, because he's going to say the right things. It's going to be revealed in his actions more than his words. And at this point, I have to say, you know, you're all here. You all sang the songs. You'll sing the songs again. We, we all sing the right songs. We say the right things. 
but does our life back that up? Gideon's going to say the right things, but all of his actions are going to betray that he doesn't really believe what he says. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Um, First of all, the Lord is the one who clearly saved him, and the Lord narrowed the army to make sure they would know the Lord saved them, not Gideon. But now they're saying, we want you to have a dynasty, you, your sons, your grandsons. We want there to be a dynasty of rule with you, Gideon. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's the right thing to say. But then look at, look at his actions. But he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the share of your plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. There were going to be a lot of gold earrings, and he knew that. This was one of the groups of the Eastern peoples. So he says, the Lord's going to rule over you, but here's, I, I, give me some gold from the plunder. Barry Webb is really good. Uh, Gideon's request for golden earrings to make an ephod is unnervingly similar to Aaron's request for similar materials to make a golden calf. Oh, this sounds like it's going the wrong direction. Greg Wong says, the curious detail is significant in that such ornaments, along with the pendants and the purple garments mentioned in 826, the stuff around the camel's necks that he's gathering, these rings, these ornaments, uh, ornaments, they were all associated with royalty. Perhaps not coincidentally, Gideon's interest in such items is followed immediately by the report of the people's offer of kingship to him. He says, the Lord's going to rule over you, but then he's going to start taking all the stuff that belongs to royalty. They answered, we will be glad to give it to them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings, he asked, came to about, I'm translating, 43 pounds. He gets 43 pounds of gold, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, which obviously were given to him as well, or the chains that were on the camel's necks, which obviously were given to him as well. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Orpha, his hometown, probably in the place where the old altar to Baal was. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. I'm going to land this with um, pointing out what a snare is. Uh, this Hebrew word is an interesting word. It's, for, it's, it's the word for a snare that you use to capture a bird. Okay, um, and, and I had a lot of pictures that I could, could, could show you. I, I wanted to put this picture up there. Because it, it, it's the one that seems to me to be the most tenuous. I mean, you just feel at any second. I mean, do you see how tight the thing is? At any second, that bird is going, boom, he's going up. The things that we do in our life are snares. Um, it's usually not our words. Sometimes our words can get us in big trouble. But more often, we as Christians, we, we sing the right songs say the right things, quote the right Bible verses, the Lord is sovereign, the Lord will rule over you, but how you live it out, that really betrays stuff. So here's where I'm going to end today with this application. Your walk talks louder than your talk talks. How you walk, how you live, says a lot more than what you say. You can say you trust the Lord, but it sure may look like you live in fear as I observe your life. You can say the Lord is 
number one. But when you look at your calendar and you look at your priorities, your walk talks much louder than your talk talks. Subtle pride and arrogance is often revealed more in your actions than in your words. Mine too. I know all the theologically right answers. I can analyze the songs and pick out the wrong theology in the songs so that we don't sing them on Sundays. But it's how I live day to day that really makes the difference. So a couple next steps from this message. I want to remind you, here's the truth. Your walk talks louder than your talk, than your talk talks. How you live screams about what you really believe way more than what you say. And there's a warning. When your practice doesn't match your theology, it will eventually expose you just like it does with Gideon. And so my challenge to you really winds up being, being this. Um, make it your lifelong goal to have your practice match your theology. It's what Eugene Peterson would call a long obedience in the same direction. Make it your lifelong goal that how you live matches what you say you believe. You trust God, you prioritize the gospel. Really? Let me see that in how you live. And maybe, maybe it's like a Ben Williams who's got his family out of Ukraine, and I have no idea how wise this is. I don't know exactly what Ben's doing. I know Ben well enough that I trust him. But Ben's planning on going back there tomorrow. You know why? Because he wants his actions to match his theology. May we live with that kind of commitment so that we don't end up being the next Ravi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll or Gideon. But we live our lives with integrity. And people look at our lives and they say, that person, how he lives, really reflects what he is talking about. Father, I pray that you would allow us um, to live what we say we believe. Father, may our theology result in us living by faith, not in fear. Um, may our convictions really shape our conduct. And may the way we walk through this life shout that we believe in your sovereignty and your power and your grace and the gospel. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.